Parashat Pikude, from time to time when we have a leap year, we get to look at Parashat Pikude. This year is a leap year. Um, and the truth is, today we're going to look at a, sub- a subject which is remarkable in that it is not included in Parashat Pikude. So we're going to look at Parashat Pikude, a few psukim of Parashat Pikude, in a minute. But what we're going to discover is that what we're looking for isn't there, and that's really what the shear is going to be about. Okay? So let's begin... Um, earlier on, in chapter 28 of Shemot, um, we talk about something called the Urim Vetumim. The Urim Vetumim, the very mysterious, um, divinating oracle that was carried in the breastplate, the Choshen of the high priest of the Kohen Gadol. Let's look at Pasuk Chavtet of chapter 28, Chavchet. In Shemot. The Nosa Aaron is Shemos B'nei Yisrael, B'choshen HaMishpat. Aaron shall carry the names of the B'nei Yisrael. I've deliberately not translated it, um, because we're not talking about all the names of the 600,000 adults, or the however many people there were in the B'nei Yisrael. We're talking about the actual B'nei Yisrael. So it's a little bit misleading, it's ambiguous. Usually we use the phrase B'nei Yisrael to talk about the nation at large. Here we're talking actually, literally, about the B'nei Yisrael, the children of Israel, the sons of Jacob. B'choshen ha-mishpat, in the choshen of judgment, or of the judgment, al-libon his heart, b'vo'el ha-kodesh lezikaron lifnei Hashem tamid. When he enters the holy, that means the sanctuary, as a remembrance before God at all times. So the reason why the name says 12 um, precious stones in the choshen, each of each one of them bears the name of one of the 12 tribes. Um, so it's Reuven, Shimon, Levi, Yehuda, Yisachar, Zvulun, Don, Naftali, God, Asher, Yosef, Binyamin. Okay, so those 12 tribes. We're not talking, Ephraim and Manasseh are included in Joseph because we need to include Levi. We need it to be exactly 12. Those names are the ones that are carried on the Choshen. Why? Says the Pasuk, Lezikaron, uh, Lifnei Hashem Tamid, so that they should be a constant reminder or remembrance before God, all times. Tamid. That's Pasuk Chavtet. Pasuk Lamed continues as follows. V'natata el Choshen HaMishpat, and you shall place in the Choshen of the Judgment, et ha'urim ve'et ha'tumim. Et ha'urim ve'et ha'tumim. Doesn't say what they are, we, and this is not. These are not words that lend themselves to natural translation. You're going to see later on that the rabbis have ideas as to how they should be translated, but these are not words which have an ordinary translation. In addition to which, notice the fact that both words have the what's called in Hebrew, in classical Hebrew, the hey hayadiah. What's the hey hayadiah? That means it's a definitive um, article. The Urim and the Tumim. Hi. The Urim and the Tumim are meant, are placed in the Choshen HaMishpat. So you usually only use the definitive article when you know what you're talking about. For example, when I'm speaking about my car, I don't say a car. I say the car, right? The, the way you would express yourself when talking about something you know about 
or that you've just spoken about is by using the definite, you def, the definitive, it's the thing. But we've never seen these two words in the Torah before, neither urim nor tumim. So why, is the defin, uh, why are they being defined using the definite article? Do you understand? Why is it haurim? It should have said, Venatata el choshen hamishpat, urim vetumim. Not et haurim, but et hatumim. Okay? Let's continue. Vahayu alev aharon, and they shall be over Aaron's heart. Bevo'olifne Hashem, when he comes before God. Venasa aharon et mishpat b'nei Yisrael. And Aaron will carry the judgment of the B'nai Yisrael, or B'nai Yisrael. Here it seems we're not talking about the sons anymore of Jacob. Here we're talking, again, more generally about the Jewish nation. Ali bought on his heart, Lifnei Hashem Tamid, before God at all times. So this is almost identical with what it says in the previous Pasuk. There it says, um, and it says, So are they the same thing or are they different? Is this just another way of saying the same thing? Or are we describing something completely different? So you're, if you can look at the psukim there, you won't find the answer. And if you're going to look elsewhere in the Torah, you're not going to find the answer. We're going to have to rely on on the scriptural analysis of the commentaries and the traditional, I guess, the Masora ideas that were passed down by many generations as to what the Urim Vatumim actually were, what their function was, and why they're mentioned in this way, because I'm, you're about to see something quite astounding. So, by way of introduction... We have four parshiot, I wrote about it this past week. We have four parshiot which deal with the construction of the Mishkan. It's a project. And the construction of the Mishkan begins at the beginning of Truma, where God says to Moses, Asuli Mikdash Right? You should make me a sanctuary, construct for me a sanctuary, and I will dwell in their midst, Betocham. And then he goes about telling Moshe Rabbeinu exactly what it is he should make and how to make it. That's Teruma and Tetzavet, both the Mishkan and the vestments of the priests and various functions of the temple. Not the main functions of the temple, but the basic, the, the way it should be constructed and what should happen once it is constructed. Then you get to Vayakhel Bekudei. And in Vayakhel Bekudei, Moses now takes these instructions and he goes to the nation and he delivers those instructions to the nation. This is what God told me that you should do. And then Betzalel ben Uri ben Chur actually goes about and constructs the Mishkan. The thing is that everything that is contained in Teruma and Tetzaveh, for example, how one should make the Aaron, the Ark of the Covenant, how one should make the shulchan, the table with the showbread. How one should make the menorah. All those details are contained in Teruma. And then in, the, in their mode of construction, it's repeated in, vaya, in Vayakhel, right? So whatever it says in Teruma by way of instruction, um, in, in its execution is repeated in Vayakhel, etc. 
um, in terms of the vestments, again, in, it mentions it in Tetzaveh. And then in Pekude, we talk about the actual, the way that they were put together. The vestments are instructed in uh, um, Tetzaveh. And in Pekude, we find out how they were made and who made them. So you would expect that the same pattern would be followed with the Urim Vetumim, right? Whatever the Urim Vetumim are, and clearly the Pasuk is referring to something very important because it's got the Hei Hayadi'ah before each one, Ha'urim and Hatumim, you would expect that when they are making all the vestments of the priest in um, Pekude, that they will mention the Urim Vetumim because they're going to be made. So for example, um, when we made the Aron in Vayakhel, Everything that is in um, uh, that is in Teruma is mentioned again in Vayakel. Do you imagine? At least the words Urim Vatumim would appear in Pekude. Let's have a look. So we're now in chapter 39, right before the end of Shemot. It's Parshat Pekude. And we're talking about the um, uh, whoever it was that made the Choshen HaMishpat, how they were making it. He made the Choshen, the work of a master weaver. How did he make it? He used different types of threads. There were threads of gold, blue, purple, crimson, twisted fine linen, etc. That's the way that the, it was made. Then what, how, how, what happened when they had the cloth that was made with these fine threads? Pasuk Tet. Ravua Hayaka Ful it was square, and they made the choshen, uh, the way it was made, it was square, and they doubled its length. One um, went over one way, it was doubled, right? It was folded, it was a long piece of cloth, and it was folded into half, and that's the way it was made. And they now created four separate rows in order to place the precious stones in those rows. What did they do? A tur odem pitada uvareket hatur echad. So the first one was odem pitada and baraket. That was the first row. What, what are these precious stones? Not important for now. Vadur sheni, the second row, nofech sapir v'yahalom. That was the second row, those three. Third row, vadur shlishi, leshem shavov achlama. Those were the three stones they placed in the uh, in the third row. Ba'atur haravii and the fourth row, Tarshish Shoham v'Yashvei. That's the those were the three that came after that. So the final row was the Tarshish Shoham and Yashpei. and then it says Mishpatzot Zahav b'miluotam. And they were enclosed in gold settings and their fillings. So they were filled into some type of gold setting. It's, I guess jewelry is no different today than it was three and a half thousand years ago. They took these stones, they created gold settings for them within the cloth. And then they placed them, there were four rows of three. You can look at depictions of this um, in books on the internet. It, you know, the, it must have been a very stunning piece of jewelry uh, that lay across the Kohen Gadol's chest with three large stones on each row, and there were four rows. 
And these stones were with the names of the children of Israel. That's talking about the 12 sons of Jacob. Shteim esrei ashmotam, pituchechotam ish al lishneim asar shavet. There were 12 uh, in number corresponding to their names, similar to the engravings of a seal. That's the way they looked, right? So that's what it means, pituchechotam. In those days you had a signature seal that, that was on a ring that was engraved that when you stuck it into a piece of, into a blob of wax would leave an impression. And that was a way of, of signing something. They didn't all have pens. Today everyone uses a pen. By the way, you don't even need a pen anymore. You can sign things online and they create the font for you. In those days, it was far less sophisticated. The technology wasn't there. They used pituchechotam. But that's the way it looked on these stones. The names, as it were, appeared like Pituchechotam for the 12 tribes. Is there any mention here of the Urim Vatumim? Nothing whatsoever. So even though when this concept of the 12 stones and the 12 names of the Jewish um, nation, the 12 tribes of the Jewish nation being inscribed on those stones, that was mentioned in Turuma, you would expect that when you get to, uh, sorry, in Tetzavo, you expect when it gets to Pekude that we're going to mention it. It's not mentioned. So it's notable by its absence. This entire shear, Eva, this is quite unique. I'm giving a shear about something that doesn't appear. That's, that's the point. They're not here. The Urim, the Tumim does not appear in Parsha Pikude, and it's a puzzle. Why is the Urim, the Tumim missed out? I have two more questions. Yes. This is the outfit the robe for the high priest yes and but the high priest is supposed to function as a judge yes and that's puzzling to me yes and number two is why is he a judge okay that's a very good question does he need training and number two no but his function is slightly different theoretically yes you know? well it's more ritual you would have thought and number two nobody doubts that those stones have oracular quality and in Torah, we don't hear very often about oracles. No. So, I'm, I'm, so, so we're going to struggle with both of these questions. In other words, the concept of an oracle in Judaism seems very strange. We're going to have to wait all the way till the end of the year. I hope you're still here. To understand the oracle nature of the Urim Vatumim. And by the way, we're going to discover that in the time of the second Beit HaMikdash, the Urim Vatumim were no longer. That's also interesting. Um, and in terms of the, of the judgment role of the Kohen, we see another place where he needs to act as a judge, where we need his opinion, and that is in Tazria Matsura, when we're talking about Tzara'at, okay? We need the Kohen to declare the Matsura to have been a Matsura, or that the Tzara'at in the, in the clothing or house is Tzara'at, and until he has come up with that Psak, as it were, until he has um, diagnosed something as Tzara'at, it's not considered Tzara'at. So that's interesting, that the Kohen has a certain determining, determining power. And it would seem here that the oracle is in the hands of the Kohen Gadol, that he has the final word in terms of some, something in particular. That's not specified yet. In a moment, by the way, we're going to specify it. But he has the last word in terms of certain things, by virtue of his being the bearer of the Urim Vatumim, whatever the Urim Vatumim are. We're not yet 
clear about that. We're going to see various opinions. Do you think that that's the reason why the translation varies, right? Some people say it's light and perfection, but yes. some people say, based on the contrast, it should be curse versus... Blessing. Nonsense. Okay, m maybe... I, I don't. I would say that all, and we're going to see quite a number of ideas about the translation. And you note I haven't translated the words. Um, I think that all the translations are, you know, reversed into the text. So we don't really know the translation, and we're trying to we're trying to use our knowledge of classical Hebrew and of the what the Urim v'Tumim were to to create a translation out of words that really we don't have a translation for. I, I say again, the fact that they are called ha'urim and ha'tumim means that they are something beyond translation. Because if they were something that um, were with translation, we'd need to first be introduced to them before they refer to as ha. Right? You can't say, use the, the um, definite article about something you have no knowledge of, unless it's something that's beyond knowledge, and therefore it doesn't matter how much it's explained, uh, you know, the definite article is not going to apply. You know, I understand that there's something called the theory of relativity. We all know about the theory of relativity. You know the story about Chaim Weitzman? Have you ever heard this story about Chaim Weitzman? So Chaim Weitzman came on a fundraising tour in the 1920s, a very controversial visit to America, because all the main... Um, all the main leadership figures in American Jewry were anti-Zionist. At the very least, they were suspicious of Zionists and didn't want to involve themselves with a national project of the Jews. But he'd managed to convince um, Einstein to come with him to America on this fundraiser. Einstein, I mean, Chaim Weizmann was famous. Einstein was, like, super famous. He was a superstar, Right. And they arrived, and none of the leadership wanted to entertain um, Einstein. And he wanted to see later, you know, he went to, to Princeton, and he began, but he wanted to charge money to Princeton to speak. And there was a massive controversy. Should he charge? He said, on a fundraising mission, it was, it's quite a story. There's a number of articles, and it's mentioned in many books. This visit of Chaim Weitzman and Einstein, Albert Einstein, in the early 1920s to the United States. Anyway, he got off the boat. There were thousands of people there to greet him. And in those days, it took, I can't remember if it's five days or six days to get from Europe to, um, to America by boat. That was the general, I think, five days. And they said to Chaim Weitzman, what did you do for five days with Albert Einstein? He was notoriously difficult to talk to. He was a very socially awkward and he was a captive audience with Chaim Weitzman for five days. He said, well, I went for long walks with him around the deck of the ship. We circled the deck of the ship. So what did you talk to him about? He said, he explained to me the theory of relativity. Well, every day? He said, yes, for hours every day. And Chaim Weitzman was a chemist. He was a famous scientist. He was a brilliant academic. He said... Uh, they, every single day for hours he would explain to me the theory of relativity and how he had arrived at this brilliant theory. And you understand it, they asked him. So he said, I'll tell you, I understand now that Einstein understands it. So I think that, you know, when it comes to things like Urim v'Tumim, 
I think that the, and this is my own answer, even before we get to any of the answers that we're going to see, the fact that it is introduced to us as ha'urim v'hatumim, even before we're told what it is, is to tell us that Einstein understands it, but we're never going to understand it. We may refer to it as the theory of relativity, but as far as we're concerned, it could be a theory of relativity among many others, the extent to which that we can ever really get to grips with what it is. The urim v'tumim, ha'urim and ha'tumim are things which apparently are beyond our comprehension. And that is the way they are introduced to us, or as you're going to see, maybe it is introduced to us in the Torah. Um, because it's not possible for us really to get to the bottom of what it is. It's beyond our comprehension. It's a small window in the Torah to something which is Kabbalistic. And very, very rare. Because, as you know, nothing in the Torah is Kabbalistic. Everything is presented to us in a factual way. That's just, just the way it's, it's presented. It, that's the whole, the whole basis of the Torah is it's meant to be a simple text. So the fact that we are introduced here to something that we cannot comprehend, it's beyond our comprehension, is conveyed to us through the method of its introduction as ha'urim and ha'tumim. You're never really going to get to the bottom of this mystery. So I, I know it's not a very good introduction to a shir where I've promised I'm going to explain to you what these things are. But, you know, just by way of introduction, you have to understand that I am Chaim Weitzman. I'm not Albert Einstein, okay? Some people would think that it's not by coincidence that those words start with first and last letter of alphabet. Yes, correct. Urim right. Yes. Going back to Kabbalah. Yes, Aleph and Tav. Okay, let's have a look at a pasuk I'm quoting here from Vayikra. Okay, and then we're going to look at a pasuk from Bamidbar. So in um, Vayikra it says, um, Vayasem alav, it's chapter 8, Vayasem alav etachoshen. So it's speaking about Moshe Rabbeinu finally dressing his brother Aaron as the high priest before the moment of inauguration of the Mishkan. Vayasem alav etachoshen. He placed the choshen on him, the breastplate. And he put into the choshen the urim and the tumim. Again, haurim and hatumim. What are they? Doesn't say. He put the urim and the tumim into the choshen. So it didn't mention it when we spoke about the construction, the, you know, the actual fabrication of the breastplate but when he puts the breastplate on his brother there it does mention it and finally this is in Bamidbar so you remember towards the end of Bamidbar um, Moses is told by God to appoint his successor who's the successor Joshua Yehoshua his primary disciple that was the the I guess as a young man the chap who accompanied Moshe Rabbeinu to Mount Sinai, he's the one who met, meets him at the foot of Mount Sinai after he's been there for 40 days and 40 nights. They're the ones who hear together the sounds from the camp of the Egel Hazahav, of the golden calf. For 40 years, he has been at Moses' side, and God says, this is your successor, not your children. I think we've given a share on this as well. Not your sons, but this uh, man who has been at your side and who's seen everything that you do, he is going to be your successor. But he's not your only successor. You have another successor. It's a parallel succession because Aaron HaKohen, 
your brother's son, Elazar, is also going to succeed your brother, and he's going to play a very important role. What is that role? It's the role of Urim Vatumim. Correct, absolutely. It's, a, it's a, a church and state. It is the civil authority and it is the religious authority. So in a country or in a nation where both of those things are very important, society is important, but so is religious observance, faith, you need some type of binary, some type of dual leadership um, model. And this is the model. So Moshe Rabbeinu, to a certain degree, encompassed both. He was a religious leader. And he was also the civil leader. He was, he was the actual military leader, etc. He had his brother, but his brother deferred totally to him. So at all stages, whenever we see, we never see Aharon taking an individual role in the nation, in the, in the, in, in the national story. When he dies, Moshe Rabbeinu, he's going to give over the role, the national leadership role, to his uh, disciple Joshua. And he's going to give the religious leadership role in totality to his nephew, El-Azhar. And here is where there's crossover. So he's telling Joshua, or God is telling um, um, Moses what he needs to tell Joshua, how he should behave as the leader. And he shall present himself to El-Azhar the priest. And he shall, on his behalf, seek the decision of the Urim, Lifnei Hashem, before God. It shall be on his word that she shall go out, his instruction, and by his instruction shall they come in. And all the Israelites with him and the entire community. So the Urim, in the hands of the Kohen, plays a decisive role in making momentous decisions about what Klal Yisrael, what the Bnei Yisrael, the nation of Israel, shall do at crucial moments in whatever is the, uh, is the story of the day. Don't forget that he's supposed to have it over his heart. They emphasize in the first project, yes. which means, again, potentially... Well, connecting, God. so there is... In other words, I'm, I'm going to now here speak very broadly before we get into the details of Urim Vatumim. Very broadly speaking, there is no such thing as a major decision in your life that is divorced from your relationship with faith. So Joshua is the great leader. He stood at Moses' side, but he's about to become really a military leader, which Moses wasn't. Initially, maybe they had battles and towards the end of his life, they were, they were involved in battles, but for the majority of his leadership, he was not involved in battle at all. And to the extent that he was involved in battle, it was defensive battles, or he was directed by God, or there were mirac miraculous events that guided him. Joshua is about to invade a country. Yehoshua is going to be the leader of an army that's invading a country and is going to, through violence, take that country back into Jewish ownership. It's been totally overwhelmed by the Canaanites. It was promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It was their country. They'd never really overtaken it, but they'd lived there. Now they needed to take it back. And Yahushua is going to lead that military campaign. 
On what basis is he going to make military decisions? One would assume he's going to make, uh, you know, tactical decisions, strategic decisions. There There are also going to be moments where he will need guidance as to whether decisions are right. Where will he get that guidance from? Moshe is dead. Aharon is dead. El-Azhar is his equal. He's going to go to El-Azhar, and El-Azhar is going to give him God's word. God's word is going to come to him through the Urim, and that is going to be the faith element, the God element in every decision that he will make, momentous decision regarding the present and future of the Jewish nation. The Urim plays a crucial role in important um, events of Jewish history. That is the implication here. And we know that that's exactly what happened. In elsewhere, it's called the Kratil Plati. But Urim Vatumim played a crucial role in all the major decisions of Jewish life over the centuries as they proceeded. And we see here that the questions that were asked were not complex questions. It's not, you know, uh, um, can I use this pot for Pesach? And by the way, I didn't use it last year. I used it yesterday, and, and I'm not sure if it was this. It's not that kind of question. Those are questions that can be considered by a rabbi and his colleagues uh, based on all the different elements. We're talking about simple decisions. Simple, but grave. Fundamental. Fundamental. So, should we um, raid this city, or shouldn't we raid this city? We've considered all the strategic advantages that we have. Tactically, we know what we're doing. We are, on that basis, on a military basis, we are confident that we can take this city over. God, are you with us or are you not with us? Should we move ahead with this battle or shouldn't we move ahead with this battle? By the way, that's exactly what an oracle is. Mythologically, oracle gives yes or no. It's a yes or no. The basis is right here in the Torah. When you have reached a decision that this is what you want to do and you want to know whether it's the right decision, it's not you don't know what to do and you are seeking a yes or no. It's when you know what you want to do and you want to make sure that you're doing the right thing, you seek the advice of the oracle. That's the role of the Urim Vatumim. You know, David HaMelech knows that he should go into battle. He just wants to make sure that Hashem is on his side. And by the way, if Hashem is not on his side, he won't go into battle. But strategically, tactically, the military people are telling him it's totally fine that you can win this battle. You've got a a better than average chance of winning this battle. There's always risks in everything that you do. Am I doing the right thing? This concept is I want to know that Hashem is with me. That's what the Urim Vatumim is there for. And this is what Yehoshua um, is going to be instructed to do when Moshe is gone. There's not going to be any prophecy. We're going to see now that's a key element to it. And therefore, Yehoshua will need to seek the guidance of Elazar based on the Urim Vatumim. So in a sense, I'm going to start this backwards. I mean, I, I just felt a great liberty when preparing this share that I don't need to focus on anything specific because it's not about this Parsha because I'm giving you a share about something that isn't in Pekude, so therefore I can really, I can jump all over the place. I've got, I've got every right to do as I please, and that's what I'm going to do. So now we're looking at source number two. It's the bottom of page one of your source sheet. So 
based on this final pasuk from Bamidbar, v'sha'alo b'mishpat ha'urim lifnei Hashem, and he shall um, he shall go out and ask, seek the decision of the urim v'tumim or the urim before God. Says the Ralbag, hinei hutrach lazei Yehoshua. Joshua needed this, required this. Why? Because Joshua wasn't renowned as a great prophet. He wasn't in daily communion with God. As had been his teacher Moses, Rabbeinu. That immediately, whenever he needs a prophecy, he just flicks the switch and the prophecy comes on. And he can just commune with God. That's what Moses was like. Moses could immediately communicate with God at any time. But Joshua did not have that ability. There were moments when God communicated with him, but it wasn't at his instigation. It was at God's instigation. So how is he going to know when he's in crucial moments and needs to make important decisions what to do? Hold on. He needed God to assist him with his questions through the Urim Batumim. So he did have immediate access to a basic answer, a yes or no answer when he needed it. Even if he couldn't seek the background to that answer through prophecy, the Urim Batumim was an interface between him and God when he needed to make crucial decisions. And this was through the medium of Elazar the priest, he was the high priest, he was the bearer of the choshen, the breastplate, and the ephod, which was the attached um, garment, before God, he is the person, Elazar HaKohen, is the one who has the proximity to the holiest religious site of Judaism. He is the one who wears this breastplate and therefore the interface, as it were, between Joshua, Yehoshua, or by the way, any of the Jewish leaders who followed, and God at moments of, uh, of crucial need was going to be the Urim Vatumim because these were not great prophets. We know that many of the leaders that followed Joshua were not great prophets. They were known as judges and they needed to have a partnership with the Kohen Gadol and there were moments when they needed to make big decisions and those decisions would be made through conferring with the Urim Vatumim and this was because it replaced, as it were, prophecy. Prophecy was something that Moses had immediate access. He had prophecy on tap. Can you imagine? We can go to the faucet, we turn on the water, and there's water. Imagine you don't have water immediately available to you. You need to go to the well, you need to get a bucket, you need to lower the bucket into the well, lift the bucket up, and then you're going to have water, right? This was the equivalent of having to go to the well with a bucket. The Urim Vatumim was a poor man's prophecy, or a non-prophet's prophecy or a, not such a great prophet's prophecy, you will have access to an answer from God even if you're not, if you don't have access to prophecy. Let's continue on page... Yes, they, they were prophecy. It was, it was a form of prophecy. So now we're looking at the Malbim. So the Ralbag is, as you know, a Rishon. It's a medieval commentary. Malbim is a 19th century Prophecy, uh, um, sorry, commentary. He should stand before Elazar the priest. Um, after 
um, after he was instructed to appoint, this is now talking about Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses, after he's been instructed to appoint Joshua, Rak Biyad Elokim, Velatetlo Rak Miktsat Hodo. I don't know what Biyad Aleph is actually. In any event, he's, he was appointed as the leader, but he didn't receive the full glory of Moses' greatness. Rak Miktsat Hodo. Only part of his glory, only part of his greatness was passed over to Joshua. In effect, Joshua's greatness was that he was Moses' trusted disciple. It was, it was a greatness by association. So he, you, you never, your reflected glory is never as great as the glory itself. So Joshua was a very great person. He passed all the tests with flying colors, but not because in and of himself necessarily he was great. And therefore, his greatness was always uh, in relation to his um, association or proximity to Moses. Imken, the prophecy of Moses did not pass itself over to Joshua. Lachen Amar. And therefore he says, If he needs to ask something from God, he should stand before Elazar, and then Elazar will act as his intermediary to ask the Urim for advice or for a decision. Matters which need to be known only because God can um, can convey that information. You will need a partnership with Elazar. So it's an interesting, uh, you know, talk about church and state. I I'm not sure this is church and state. It's something slightly different. It's a different branch of government. So in a, in a way, and by the way, we see this a lot much later on. In, uh, in Jewish history, where there's three branches of government. I think I've spoken about this before. There is, the, there is the prophet, there is the priest, and there is the king. So Moshe, interestingly enough, even though his brother was the priest and carried out the functions of priesthood, Moshe really had all those three roles. He encompassed all of those three. In fact, we know that Moshe should have been the priest, and he gave it to his brother. And for the first week of the Mishkan, we haven't got there yet, Moshe Rabbeinu was the high priest. And then he gave it over to, to his brother. He was the priest, he was the prophet, and he was the king. What happens when Moshe goes, and we don't have a leader who's capable of all these three functions, so we're going to, have, we're going to see a division of power. Joshua is the one who leads the military campaign. But big decisions need to ha be, uh, uh, be carried out through consultation with God. Well, is he going to directly consult with God? No, he doesn't have that power. He's going to need to consult with God through El-Azhar. And that will somehow neutralize his absolute power. He's not going to have absolute power. And that will, there will be a partnership between El-Azhar, the priest, and Joshua, as it were, the king, the leader. And that way they're going to protect um, the nation from corruption in the leadership. So there's more going on here. The dynamics here of using the Urim Vatumim rather than prophecy means that the great leader has to consult with the Kohen in order to make big decisions. So it's, it's, it's a fantastic idea. 
And this, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu was trusted because he's Moshe Rabbeinu, but not everybody's Moshe Rabbeinu. Not even your trusted disciple Joshua can be Moshe Rabbeinu. And therefore we're going to need El Azar to be in partnership with him in order for those big decisions to be made. Let's move on now because we're going to see that the Gemara says, this is um, source number three, the Gemara in Sota says, that Mishemetu Navim Harishonim Batlu Urimvetumim. From the time that the great prophets, the early prophets died, Isaiah, Jeremiah, um, Ezekiel, Batlu Urimvetumim, there was no more Urimvetumim. Alongside them, the Urimvetumim died. You know, there were many things that existed in the early history of the Jews, which basically went, fell into disuse and disappeared in the later history of the Jews, and we don't have them anymore. Prophecy is one of those things. But alongside prophecy, the Urim Vatumim also was abandoned and was no longer functional at the time of the second Beit HaMikdash. Look what the Rambam, Maimonides, says in his explanation of that Mishnah. Nevi'im Harishonim, the first prophets, Heim Nevi'e Bayit Rishon, these are the prophets of the first temple. Aval Nevi'e the prophets of the second temple, the Haim, Chagai, Zechariah, Umalachi, the uh, three famous prophets of the second temple, early second temple period, which were, who were Chagai, um, Zechariah, and um, um, Malachi, the Chavereen and their associates, Korin Otan Nevim Hachronim, they're called the latter prophets. By the time it came to their prophetic status, the Urim Vatumim was no more. And it would appear that the Urim Vatumim was a crucial element of that first temple period, of this post-Moses period until the end of the first temple. But when it came to the end of the first temple, the Urim Vatumim were no longer required. Why do you think that may be? We have discussed this before. Well, good corrupted. No. There was plenty of corruption in the second temple. I don't have to recall all that history. You've been to all the lectures. Corruption never dies. There's corruption right now in the year 2019. It's not about that. What else was there not in the Second Temple period? There was an aversion to pagan worship. So in the First Temple, if you recall, the greatest threat to the unity of the Jewish nation and to the integrity of the Jewish faith was Avodah Zarah, pagan worship. It was what completely undermined the Jewish nation, time after time after time. We just recently read the Torah of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, right? A couple of weeks ago. What is that about? There was this incessant desire by the Jewish nation to introduce pagan worship into the, their faith system, even though they knew that God was God. That didn't exist in the time of the Second Temple. Why was it that the Hasmoneans rose up against the Greeks? Because they were sickened by the fact that there had been an introduction of a Greek god into the temple in Jerusalem. They, were, they didn't have this desire to be associated with paganism anymore. I want you to park that idea. We're going to come back to it a little later. Let's have a look. And here's a Gomorrah in Yoma. It's Dafain Gimelomet base. Afal Pishekzeras Novi Chizeras. Even though that um, if a Novi says something, 
it doesn't mean that it's final. It's not the final word. When Isaiah says there is going to be great destruction, does that mean there is going to be great destruction? No. Prophecy is one alternative of many. We've discussed this before as well. When a prophet says something is going to happen, immediately, next week, in three months' time, we've, di we've discussed it in the prophecy of Jonah. Right? He goes to Nineveh and he tells them, your city is going to be destroyed unless you do teshuva. But he describes the destruction and then they do teshuva and the destruction never takes place. By the way, that's why he wanted to avoid giving them this piece of information because he preferred for them to be destroyed based on their depravity. The idea is that a prophet can prophesy. And the prophecy doesn't come true. doesn't mean that it isn't true. It's one of several alternatives, and it will certainly come true unless you do teshuva or whatever mitigating action needs to be taken. Gezerat urim v'tumim eno choseret. However, when it comes to urim v'tumim, whatever the urim v'tumim says, that will never be revoked. It's not, it has a stronger element than prophecy. An oracle, such as the Urim Vatumim, when it predicts that something is right or wrong or should or shouldn't happen, that is never going to change. You're never going to be able to go back and say, you remember you said last week, Mr. Urim Vatumim, etc. Can't we change it to something else? No. Once something has been said by the Urim Vatumim, that is it. It's final. Shenemar, b'mishpat ha'urim. The word mishpat is uh, judgment. The judgment of the Urim is not like the prediction, it's not Nevi'ut, it's not prediction, it's not prophecy, it is judgment. This is the final word. Lama nikra sheman Urim v'tumim, asks the Gemara. This is a Gemara. Why were, why were they called or why was it called Urim v'tumim? Urim sheme'irin et divrehen, Urim because enlightens their words, tumim shemashlimin et divrehem, and tumim because it perfects their words. The Talmud explains the meaning using midrashic terminology, right? This is a midrashic explanation of the words urim v'tumim. I'm using that deliberately. It's not a translation. I told you before, we don't know the translation of urim and tumim, but the midrash is always permitted to use the formulation of a word as a way of deriving information out of that word. Urim v'tumim are not to be translated as light and perfection. They are meant to be understood as conveying light and perfection by virtue of the fact that the word urim has the word or in it. Or means light. And tumim sounds like tamim. Tamim is perfection. So the ideas conveyed by these two words seem to emanate from light and perfection. Says Rashi, and this is on Parshat Tetzaveh, Rashi explains the dynamics of Urim and Tumim. Okay, look at the translation. I put a translation there below. This was an inscription of the full name of God. What was the Urim Vatumim? So he says it was a Shem Hamaforash. He is, the, this is the first time I'm telling you what the Urim Vatumim is. The Urim Vatumim was a Shem Amaforash. Like we have, when we have a Sefer Torah, we take parchment. 
we write on it the name of God using special ink. Shem HaMaforash, according to most ways of understanding it, was either a name of God which has 42 letters or a name of God which has 72 letters. But either way, it's a much longer name of, the, of God than the one we are used to writing in the Torah, which has four letters. And that was what the Urim V'tumim was. And Urim V'tumim was, I guess, a tiny little scroll that was placed in the breastplate inside the Choshen. And that was the, um, the engine of this interface between God and the Kohen, or God and those who sought an answer from God. That's what Rashi is saying. It was placed between the folds of the Choshen, through which it made his or its statements clear. And now he quotes the Gemara, illuminates his words and perfects his words. Now, in the second temple, says Rashi, there was the Choshen, because it would be impossible for the high priest to lack a vestment. So don't think that there was no Choshen during the time of the second Beit HaMikdash. Just because we said, remember I quoted the Mishnah in Sota, which says that there was no more Urim V'tumim in the second Beit HaMikdash at the time when there were none of the early prophets. Nevertheless, there was still a Choshen. How do we understand there being a Choshen without Urim V'tumim, says Rashi? That divine name was not within it. So that divine name was removed from it, somehow, was no longer there, and therefore, the Choshen existed. There were still the 12 stones in the four rows, but there was not the Urim V'tumim, which was a separate component of this garment. And therefore, um, they couldn't consult with the Urim V'tumim during the time of the second Beit HaMikdash. And it was on account of this inscription, says Rashi, which constituted the Urim V'tumim, and which enabled it to give decisions, that it was called judgment. That's why it was called Choshen HaMishpat, Right? And also it says, and look here, the Pasuk says in Bamidbar chapter 27, which we quoted on, on the first page in the first source, V'sha'al lo b'mishpat ha'urim. So he adds another element to it. It was, it was called, it, was, it made decisions. It wasn't prophecy. Prophecy is something else. Prophecy is a potential outcome of a situation. The ultimate um, result of this particular trajectory as prophesied by God. So, you know, if you eat too much sugar when you're young, the chances are, if you have a family history of diabetes, that you will become a diabetic. That's, I'm not going to say that's a prophecy. I'm just going to tell you, um, by way of comparison, you can see point B at point A, but however, you can mitigate point B if you stop having too much sugary food and you take medication or you do exercise or whatever it is. So a prophet doesn't tell you what is going to be, but only what can be if nothing changes. The Urim V'tumim was called Mishpat HaUrim. It's not something that can be, it's something that will inevitably be. This is what's going to happen. This is, there's not an out, it's not 99%, it's 100%. This is going to happen and it cannot be revoked. That's what Rashi is saying. That's why it's called Mishpat HaUrim. And that's why it's called Choshen HaMishpat. Because the Urim V'tumim was somehow contained within the Choshen. Let me continue with the Ramban. The Ramban says... 
first he quotes the Ibn Ezra, who says that the Urim Vatumim was some construct of gold and silver. And he says that the Ibn Ezra uh, gives a lengthy explanation as to how this should be, and he dismisses it, amar klum, he says. And what the Ibn Ezra says makes no sense to him at all, and he dismisses it. Rather, Avalhem Kadivrei Rashi. He agrees with Rashi that the Urim Vatumim was katav shem hamafarash natum ben kiflehachoshen. That the Urim Vatumim was some type of written parchment that was placed between the folds of the Choshen. And it was for that reason, in fact, that the Choshen was made by a, by a piece of cloth being folded into two. The whole purpose of it being folded was so that the Urim Vatumim could be placed within it. But wait, it's almost like a vehicle to go to the heart to carve out the ability to make the right decision. Yes, but now we're trying to work out what it was. So this is all, by the way, speculation. We don't know what it was. Rashi doesn't know. He has a Masorah. He has a tradition that it was this parchment. The Ramban agrees with him. He disagrees with Ibn Ezra, who says something completely different. You're going to see Maimonides says something else completely. What's the proof? So the Ramban comes up with a fascinating explanation as to why um, it is that the Urim Vatumim couldn't be what the Ibn Ezra says and has to be what Rashi says because there's absolutely no reference in Turuma or Tetzaveh or Vayakel or Pekude as to how the Urim Vatumim should be made. And it would appear, says the Ramban, if anything needs to be made using the expertise of somebody who knows how to make things, that it would be mentioned in one of those four um, parshiot. But it's not mentioned once. If it isn't mentioned once, then it must be that it's not that. It's something else completely. It doesn't require to be mentioned. But how would they have known how to make it? How would they know what to do? Belohis giram. Uh, it's not mentioned once, not in the instruction and not in the construction. And it only talks about the actual vestments. They made the ephod. They made the choshen. It doesn't say that they made the urim and tumim. They didn't need to say that because in order to give that instruction... Or in order for them to be constructed, it needs to be something that needs expertise by those people as to how to make it. If you know, if you ask a plumber to come and put a bathroom together, you give him all the components, you tell him how you want the bathroom to look, a plan, and then the plumber and the, and the contractor will put the bathroom together. But when it comes to other elements of your home, which have got nothing to do with construction, you know, how to place the pictures on the mantelpiece, because you want to see your mother over here and your father over there and your children over there, you don't tell them what to do because you really need to do it yourself. That's something very personal. And the Urim Vatumim was something which is personal between God and the Jewish people. And the only one who can carry out this task is Moshe. And therefore it doesn't need to be said to Moshe to instruct the Jewish nation to make it. Moshe himself is in direct communication with God and he's going to know what to do and that's exactly what the Ramban says. And if it was something that needed to be made by a special expert, it would have uh, given a very long explanation as to how it should be made, even more than any of the other things. And if he wants to tell the, um, 
Moshe to tell them, but doesn't want to give the long explanation as to how it should be done. He could say it in short, okay, make, tell them to make the Urim V'tumim as I showed it to you on the mountain, on Mount Sinai. It should say something, but it doesn't say anything at all. Why? Because this was not something that was made by anybody else but Moshe. Um, I just want to find that piece. Um, when he actually later on in Parshat Vayikra told him that he has to make the Urim V'tumim, he um, just says to him, put it inside the Choshen. Doesn't tell them how, doesn't tell him how to make the, make the Urim V'tumim. And it's mentioned using the Hei Ha'yidi'ah, the definite article. And here's the key point that Ramban wants to make. The Urim V'tumim was only mentioned in relation to Moshe. Do you know why? Because it was some type of personal thing between God and Moshe. This was something very secretive. Look what he says. He actually uses that word. Shamar el choshen hamishpat. Look at the bottom. I've underlined it. sod masur The Urim V'tumim were a Kabbalistic secret that was delivered to Moshe according to that special relationship that he had with God. He wrote them in great sanctity. Whatever was written on the Urim V'tumim was a, a unique aspect of the relationship between God and Moshe, and therefore it's not recalled in the Torah at all. In fact, the reason why it is absent from Parshat Pikudei is to teach us that this was not part of the construction of the Mishkan. This was something Kabbalistic, something spiritual that was a unique task of Moshe that doesn't even warrant a mention in the Torah, which, as we know, deals only with non-Kabbalistic ideas. So it's hinted at. We know it exists. We need to know it exists because this oracular nature of it needs to be conveyed to us. This relationship between the leader and the Urim V'tumim when they have to make big decisions needs to be contained in the Torah. Nevertheless, what the Urim V'tumim is does not need to be conveyed and can't be conveyed to us in the Torah because it is of a Kabbalistic nature. Continues the Ramban. In fact, it's possible that it wasn't even made by Moshe Rabbeinu. It was something that was, as it were, made in heaven. You know, you've seen a little label on your clothes, made in China. Imagine you saw the label on the Urim V'tumim, made in heaven. And that's why it's just mentioned without explaining what it is. There's no translation, but it has the definite article. To convey this, all of this is conveyed in its presentation. The fact that it's not mentioned in Parsha Pikudei, and that when it is mentioned, it's mentioned with a Hei Hayidi'ah, that there's no understandable translation for it, that there's no description of how it was actually constructed, and that it has this unique relationship as an interface between um, uh, the leader of the Jewish nation and God. That's the relationship that exists. It's a sort of quasi-prophetic oracle. All of that is conveyed uh, uh, by uh, its mode of presentation in the Torah. That's what the Ramban is teaching us. And he's relying as well on Rashi's idea that it was, in fact, 
a, um, the, the Urim V'tumim was an ineffable name of God, the lengthy, full name of God that was inserted into the folds of the Choshen, and it was through this that uh, the information that was conveyed was conveyed. Va'inyanhu, and what is this all about? Ki hayu shemot kedoshim, there were holy names. Mikocham ya'iru ha'otiyot me'avne ha'choshen el eine ha'koen ha'shoel b'mishpatam. Now this is the method by which the information was conveyed. The holy names would um, somehow act as a light of the letters that were in the stones, the precious stones of the Choshen. They would light up when the Kohen would ask for a judgment, for a decision. So when the oracle was asked, when the Urim V'tumim was asked, uh, who should be the tribe that should rise up with us? at the beginning, in order to fight, who should be at the forefront? Who should be at the front line of this uh, military attack against the Canaanites? That was the question that was asked to the Urim Batumim. So the Kohen posed this question to the Urim, and it lit up in front of his eyes the, um, the name of Yehuda on the stone, that was the precious stone that was Judah, and another bunch of letters, the Yud Milevi, the Yud of Levi, the Ayin Mishimon, the Ayin of Shimon, the Lamud Milevi, the Lamud of Levi, the Hey Me Avraham. So it, it, um, the Ramban says that there was a Hey in Avraham. And Abraham's name was also on the Choshen. Hakatuv Sham Aldat Rabotenu. According to the rabbis in Yuma Dafayim Gimel, the name of Abraham was also somehow written on the Choshen. And those letters lit up. Um, and what he says is something very interesting that the Urim were the letters lighting up, the Tumim was a way of sorting the letters out. So the Urim, sometimes, you know, you see a whole bunch of letters lighting up. Have you ever done a word puzzle? I'm sure you've done a word puzzle before, right? You see the word puzzle, it's a bunch of jumbled up letters. You can't see the words. Now, even if you, a whole bunch of letters would now light up, or they'd be in red, you, they wouldn't necessarily, because you've just seen a jumble of letters, you wouldn't necessarily be able to read a word out of all the letters that would light up. You need to have a certain understanding of what those letters could be in order to sort them out into the words that they are meant to be. So the first thing is to be able to recognize the letters that would create the word that you need. Then you should be able to spell that word. So the Urim was the lighting up of the letters. The Tumim was the ability to create words out of the letters that lit up. So what he is being told now in Shoftim about attacking the Canaanites, about this military campaign, is Yehuda Ya'aleh. But the Ramban comes up with various other permutations of letters that, that, in other words, the words that could emanate out of Yehuda Ya'aleh, the same letters, um, there's a whole bunch of words that could come out of it. You don't need to be a great um, wordsmith to calculate a whole bunch of different words that could emanate from, you know, ten letters. 
And if that's the case, the discernment, the ability to um, derive exactly what these words were telling you to do, that was the power of the Tumim. The Urim was the lighting up of the letters. The Tumim was the ability to understand them. That's what the Ramban says. And this is a madriga at the level, uh, it's more of a level than Ruach HaKodesh. It's not just a spiritual vision. But it's slightly lower than Nevu'ah, than prophecy. And it is, um, it is above just a voice from heaven. So there's, there's different levels of prophecy. There is this Ruach HaKodesh, which is the same. Um, it's a parallel power to the Urim V'tumim. So you have Ruach HaKodesh when you know something. You're not quite sure. You have an instinctive spiritual knowledge of something. You know that this is correct. That's called Ruach HaKodesh. It's a form of prophecy, but it's not prophecy. It's below the level of prophecy. Prophecy is clarity because you heard it directly from God. And then you've got something called Batkol, which is a kind of voice, a heavenly voice. That's the lowest level. Shemishtamshim ba Bebait Sheni. The Batkol was the method by which they would communicate with God during the second Beit HaMikdash. They didn't have the Urim V'tumim anymore, and they certainly didn't have prophecy. After prophecy ended, Batkol was the only method by which they could communicate, as it were, with God. Upasku Urim V'tumim. Urim V'tumim was over. Ve'efshar, she'achare she'natan Moshe be'choshen ha'shemot ha'kadoshim she'ala Urim V'atumim, hayu nodeim the Ramban suggests something very intriguing. Perhaps he says, what is Ruach HaKodesh? After the Urim V'tumim were created, there was a certain power that was conveyed that didn't necessarily require the Choshen in order to derive this information. And even when the Urim V'tumim were no longer there, you didn't have access to this particular form of oracle, this interface with God. Nevertheless, the ability to derive that information was given over to certain Yechidei Segula, certain very worthy individuals, and they could derive this information somehow using the same spiritual technology, I don't know what else to call it, in order for them to make a decision. That is what Ruach HaKodesh is. But I don't think it was on a national level. I think it was only on a personal level. If somebody has a personal issue or community issue, they could go to a rabbi and the rabbi could make decisions on the basis of Ruach HaKodesh. But at a national level, there was no longer Urim V'tumim, there was no longer prophecy, and we were bereft of these great powers. I know that we're going to run out of time. I just want to tell you that the Rambam disagrees completely. He says that the Urim V'tumim, the reason it's not mentioned in um, Pekude, is because the Urim V'tumim were the 12 stones. They weren't special, some special scroll of parchment with God's name. It, though, and that's why it is mentioned in Tetzaveh, and the Urim V'tumim is mentioned in conjunction with the 12 stones, but when the actual breastplate was put together, it's not mentioned because it's natural that that's what we must be talking about. They put the 12 stones in the four rows. We're talking about the Urim V'tumim. And then in Vayikra, 
Why is it mentioned there? Because it says he put the breastplate, he put the Urim Vatumim into the breastplate. He's talking about the 12 stones that were put into the breastplate. So the idea that the Rambam comes up with is that there wasn't some special secretive thing that was placed in the folds of the Choshen. Simply the stones themselves had a spiritual or a faith power that enabled them to communicate, as it were, with whoever was trying to interface with God. And the Urim Vatumim is just another way of expressing the same idea as the 12 stones, the 12 precious stones containing, or the, in which were inscribed the names of the, of the Jewish, um, of the children of Jacob. And that's why they are mentioned as Ha'urim Vahatumim, because it's self-evident that when we're talking about the Choshen, and we mentioned Ha'urim Vahatumim, that we're talking about these 12 stones. That's why the definite article is used. We're going to f- um, finish with the Rashba, the Rashbam. The Rashbam, and this week I, t- I promised this to you at the beginning. What were the Urim Vatumim? The Urim Vatumim were an oracle. Why was the oracle required? Says the Rashbam. And it's a, an idea which is reminiscent of the Rambam. I'm not telling you that the Rashbam was, a, was somebody who followed closely the philosophy of the Rambam, but it's reminiscent of something the Rambam might have said in Marinavuchim. Much of what the Jewish nation adopted in its early nationhood was a reflection of the things that were going on in the cultures around them. And the cultures around them had this concept of an oracle, that you could approach some object and interface with it, and that object would give you answers through divination. Don't, you know, in modern terms, if you read the tea leaves, right? You know, there's people who read tarot cards. The way the cards come out, that's going to convey information to you. That's an oracle. I go, to, I go to a tarot card reader. Should I go on my vacation to Hawaii or shouldn't I go on my vacation to Hawaii? They take out five tarot cards and they tell you whether or not you should go to the vacation. I don't I've never been, but I'm assuming that's what happens. So the idea being that other cultures have an oracle. Says the Rashbam, Im ha'umot magidim lahem trafimuksamim shelahem beruach tum'ah. If it's true to say that in the nations of the world, they have these objects, these oracles that divinate, have divinating force to deliver information to those. And he's assuming that that information is real. That's, by the way, a very important assumption. We always assume that Avodah Zarah or, or Ruach Tum'ah doesn't work. Who says it doesn't work? Maybe it does work. Who says that if you look at the stars, or if you look at your uh, star sign, that that doesn't really contain information about you? Maybe it, maybe it does. Maybe that information is real. It's very possible that it's real. And they obviously believed in it. And why would they believe in something that never works? Imagine every single time you went to something, you know, you've always got a 50-50 chance that something's going to be wrong. So if it's exactly 50-50, you don't have to be a great mathematician to work it out. Somebody gets asked 100 questions, yes or no questions, and 50% of the time he gets it right, and 50% of the time he gets it wrong, you can assume he doesn't know what he's talking about, right? I mean, that's, you can make an automatic assumption without being a great mathematician or statistician. However, if 75% of the time, or 80%, or 90% of the time they get it right, 
Then you're going to begin to believe in whatever power they claim to represent. I must assume that in the days of idol worship, the idol-worshipping priests got it right a lot of the time. That being the case, there is a certain strength and power in Ruach Tum'ah. It's something that really exists. And in order to counteract that, we have the Urim V'Tumim. Lahavdil Kamahavdalot Ben Tum'ah Tahara. Obviously separating as many separations as you can imagine, infinite number of separations between impurity and purity. How much more so to a Kedusha which does actually deliver the correct answer every single time. In other words, the Urim V'tumim was something that was created, that was delivered, given to the Jewish nation as a counterpoint to that which existed in existing culture when an immediate answer was needed about some major decision that had to be taken. And obviously, whereas they usually got it right, perhaps, when it came to the Urim V'tumim, the Urim V'tumim always got it right. That's no longer going to be necessary when people don't believe in Avodah Zarah. So when the second, when the first temple was there, People still believed in Avodah Zarah. The Urim V'tumim was a really important interface between God and the nation. But once Avodah Zarah is, uh, is eradicated, there's no longer a desire to serve pagan gods, and nobody really believes in them. They're cultural icons, and they're an important part of Greek and Roman culture, but nobody really believes in the gods like they had in primitive, you know, in the, in the origins of human history. If that's the case, the Urim V'tumim is no longer required. The Choshen is still there. You still have to wear this vestment of the Kohen Gadol. But the Urim V'tumim isn't required. You don't need to have something to tell you this information. That being the case, the Urim V'tumim were now defunct and were no longer part of the vestments of the high priest. We leave it here for today.